Recently, I was talking with a friend about nutrition, and I was explaining to him that the things I used to do with my diet and my exercise that used to help me in my 30s are not working the same way in my 40s. And so I was wanting his input, and he said, well, David, let me ask you a question. He said, when do you stop eating? And at first, I was like, how dare you? (laughs) When do you stop eating? But he said, no, 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 this is what I mean. When you sit down to have a meal, how do you know it's time to stop eating? And uh, I said, oh, well, either the food is gone um, or I'm full. And he said, well, that's your problem. I said, what do you mean? He goes, don't eat till you're full. Eat till you're not hungry anymore. And I said, that sounds like the worst way to live your life. (laughs) We live in a society that values being full. Not just of food, of course, but our lives being full. In fact, there is sort of this pressure to fill your life up with meaningful things, to keep up with other people who are filling their lives up with opportunities and experiences and relationships and achievements and accomplishments. And it's like filling your life up with a better job, with a bigger home, with a newer vehicle. It's a society, a culture that says live full, live full. But Paul here in Philippians chapter 2 actually is going to challenge us to live empty. And he's going to teach us something very interesting, that the Christian has a life that is both full and empty at the same time, full of things that we couldn't give to ourselves and empty of things that we don't need anymore. And so I want us to look at this passage together as Paul first points out to the church in Philippi that if you're a believer, there is a life that you have that is full. In fact, believers should have the fullest life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give you the fullest kind of life imaginable. And in Philippians 2, verse 1, Paul says to them, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And it's important for us to understand how Paul is using the word if here. Most of the time when we hear the word if, it's speaking of a possibility, if this, then that. But Paul is not using if to denote a possibility. Paul is using if to point out a certainty. In other words, what Paul is doing in this, uh, in this verse is he's having a sort of rhetorical conversation with the church in Philippi. So this is how it would sound. Actually, let me put the verse back up here. Here's, here's how it would sound if, if Paul was with the people in Philippi. He would say to them, hey, is there any encouragement in Christ? And they would say, yes. Is there any comfort? Have any of you experienced any comfort from the love of Jesus? And the whole room would say, yes. Is there participation in the Spirit, which means is there community and connectedness and life together because of the Holy Spirit? And the room would say yes, and then he would say, have any of you ever experienced his deepest sympathy towards you and his Jesus' affection towards you? And they would say yes. And so Paul here is not saying if, I wonder if, he's saying I know if, but I'm just reminding you. And he's doing it in the form of sort of a question. If there is or is there. And Paul here is pointing out to them that there are things that the Christian life should be filled with that don't come from ourselves or come from this world but are given to us only through Jesus. Let's break this verse down and look at each phrase. This first thing he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, has, have you experienced the encouragement that is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone? I was even thinking about this morning, I was reading through my notes and I thought, you know, we often talk about what Jesus does for us, that he loves us, right? He saves us, he f- delivers us, he, he heals us, he makes us new. But 
When's the last time you thought about the idea that Jesus encourages us? Jesus should be a source of encouragement for us. He encourages us, and he encourages us by what he's done for us, what he's doing now in us, and what he will do someday. And so Jesus himself fills our hearts with courage so that no matter what we're going through, whatever our circumstances, our situations, and our challenges are, we can have courage in our hearts because Jesus is a constant source of encouragement. Have you experienced his encouragement? The second thing here is comfort from love, that the love of Jesus comforts us. You know, every romantic comedy is basically based around the same tension. Can somebody know me completely and still love me? Could someone know everything about me and still accept me? And most of us have convinced ourselves somewhere along the way it's not possible. If somebody knew everything about me, then they wouldn't accept me anymore. And so we become masters at disguising ourselves. Even from those that we are closest with, we hide from people the very worst parts of ourselves, thinking if you really knew me, everything I thought and everything, that I, uh, everything in me, then you would no longer love me and accept me. But the comfort that we have in Christ's love is that Christ's love is an all-knowing love. That God knows everything about you, yet he loves you completely. It's the love we all need. It's the love we're all searching for, and it's a love that can fill up our lives. Next, he talks about participation in the Spirit, and the word participation there from the Greek is the word koinonia, which means community, fellowship, life together. This morning at 8.30, we're, at 8.30 everyone who's serving in the 9 a.m. service meets in the lobby, and we read a scripture and we pray together. This is a new thing that we've been doing in the last couple of months. And this morning we were reading about how the Lord gives us the strength we need to serve one another. And so we would begin to pray about all the things that we're thankful. thankful. Thank you, God, that you fill my life with this. And when it was my turn to pray, all of a sudden I was struck by this idea that one of the things that the Lord has filled my life with is you. It's us. It's this church community. And so I began to pray, Lord, thank you for those who are standing in this lobby this morning. You fill my life with them. And, and, and we're a gift to each other. I know sometimes you'd like to return some of these gifts. But we are a gift to one another. And one of the ways that the Lord fills our lives up is his spirit draws us into community together and connectness together. And he fills our lives with each other. And then lastly, he speaks of this affection and sympathy that is found in Jesus. That Jesus Christ, the Bible says that Jesus is our great high priest who is seated at the right-hand side of the Father, who lives forever to make intercession for you and me. And what that means this morning is that even as you're sitting here and listening to this message and fighting off distraction and fighting off tiredness and fighting off other things, Jesus himself is praying, let them get it. Let them hear it. Let their lives be changed by it. Whatever you've been walking through in the last week, the last month, whatever is before you, Jesus is praying for you. When you have a hard decision to make, Jesus himself is praying for you. When you're facing internal conflict, mental challenges, emotional challenges, physical challenges, Jesus is praying for you. When you're battling that same sin and that same attitude again, Jesus is praying for you. And his prayer for you is not distant in the sense that he only theoretically knows about what you're going through. The Bible says that Jesus is a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses because he became one of us. And so whatever your weaknesses that you try to hide from Jesus, good luck with that. <laughs> whatever your weaknesses that you try to hide from each other, that's the very weakness that Jesus says, I get it. I can sympathize with you in that. 
And out of that, we find such affection and sympathy. And so what Paul is doing in just this one verse, we're only one verse in, we won't move this slow all morning, we're only one verse in, what Paul is doing here is he's reminding the church in Philippi, don't forget, and he's bringing them back to their memories, he's, he's, he's making this compelling emotional appeal, and what he's saying is, don't forget all that Jesus has done for you. Here's one verse in the entire Bible these are four things that Jesus has filled your life up with. So this morning, if you're a believer, and if I were to go through this and say, like Paul would have said, is there any encouragement in Christ? This room should say, yes. Is there any comfort in his love? Yes. Is there any uh, uh, participation in the spirit? Yes. Have you ever experienced the affection and sympathy of Jesus in your life? And the answer should be yes. And Paul's saying your lives are full. You've got your lives filled up with these things because of Jesus. These are not things you could give yourself. These are not things that the world can give you. But these are things that Jesus makes possible for you so that you can live the full life. Now what Paul is doing here is actually brilliant. He's setting them up for what he's going to say next. This past week, I, my family and I went to the Cheesecake Factory at the mall, and we were having dinner there. And you know, if you go to the Cheesecake Factory, no matter what you eat for dinner, in the back of your mind, you're thinking about cheesecake. You're like, I got to save some space because there's 36 types of cheesecake here, and one of them is really calling my name, right? Or more than one, usually. And so we go out to eat, and we're eating our meals, and then we're like, we got to get cheesecake. But we were full. You know, I already admitted, I eat till I'm full. And so we ordered three pieces of cheesecake to take home with us to, to enjoy later. Now, my girls, as they get older, they're much better at sharing. They're, they're just kind of, but when they were young, if we were to go to the place like the Cheesecake Factory and we were all to get our own slice of cheesecake $100 later, uh, we, we would sit there and I would look around. And as a dad, I feel like it's my responsibility to try everybody's cheesecake, right? That's a dad job, tithe a bite of your cheesecake to your dad. And so um, I would ask them. And, and when they were little, they would push back, <laughs> push back. And... Uh, if I was like Paul, here's what I would say. Um, did I decide that we would all go out to eat tonight? Yes. Did I drive us here, and am I the one that pays for the gas that got us here? Yes. When the bill comes in a little bit, am I going to pay for it? Yes. Then give me a bite <laughs> of your cheesecake. <laughs> and that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, are these things true? And the Philippians are like, they don't even see it coming, those dummies. They're like, yes, 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 yes. And then Paul says, all right, so you have a full life, but there's an empty life that you need. And he makes the ask. Let's look at it, verse two. So verse one, if all of those things are true, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing. These are some of the hardest words, I think, in all of the New Testament for us to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. What Paul is saying here is if we're going to live out of the fullness of life that Jesus has provided for us, we're going to have to be willing to empty ourselves of certain things because God, even God, will not fill what is already full. 
And if we fill our lives with the wrong things, then when it comes time to receive the right things, we will not be able to. There's an empty life that we all need. Let's look at these verses again real quick. Verse 2, what's Paul talking about here? If I could summarize this verse with one word, the word is unity. Same mind, same heart, one accord. He's saying live empty of all of your personal preferences. Empty yourself of entitlement. Empty yourself of getting your way. Empty yourself of being right and being seen as right and live in unity. There's a story I came across this week, a church in Dallas, this is a long time ago, but a church in Dallas had a split, a church split, they divided, and it got so ugly that it escalated to the point of a lawsuit where half of the church was suing the other half of the church to retain the property of the church. It became a big story in the local news, not a great moment for the church. They brought it to court, and the judge, in his wisdom or her wisdom, decided this is not a decision for me to make. This is an ecclesiastical, denominational decision. Your denomination needs to make a choice on this. I'm not going to make a choice. And so they, they went back to the denomination. The denomination had leadership in place. They made a decision, and one side kept the property, and the other side lost the argument. And what they did is they started another church down the street. Later, it was reported in the Dallas newspapers that the church court had traced the source of the matter back to its origin. And this is it. The trouble that led to this, a church split, lawsuits, multiple churches, the trouble began when, at a church dinner, an elder in the church was served a smaller slice of ham than the child next to him. It's crazy. I don't even like ham. But... It's, it's crazy. If it was roast beef, that's a whole other thing. It's, it's embarrassing. Now, obviously, we all know it was more complex than a piece of ham. There obviously were a lot of already issues. However, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. The things that the people of God, you've received the comfort of his love. You've received the participation of the spirit. You've received his affection and his sympathy. Your life is filled and, and, and but. You can't empty yourself of getting a smaller slice of ham than the child next to you. And it seems this is such a silly example, but there's so many things that churches divide over and people divide over. And listen, I could list so many things over the last three years in our country that we're dividing over. And Paul is saying, you don't realize how full your life is and you're unwilling to empty yourself of your personal preferences. Please, Paul's making this appeal. Have the same mind. Be of one accord. The next verse, if I were to summarize this verse with one word, it's humility. Emptying ourselves of our pride, our ugly pride. The pride that makes us think we're better than others. The pride that leverages every unique thing about ourselves to feel superior to others. You know what pride is? Pride is making everything about me and insisting that others do the same. Pride is me at the center of the universe, me at the center of every conversation, me at the center of every decision that's made by anybody, whether it has anything to do with me or not. I insert myself into the middle of it. That's pride, and Paul is saying you got to empty yourself of pride. You know, before the Bible came along, before the New Testament era, before Jesus, before Christianity, pride was never a respected characteristic. It is, it is now, actually. I'm sorry. Let me say that again. Humility was never a respected characteristic. It is now. We actually do as a society value to some extent people who are down to earth, genuine, likable, and seem humble. So that person seems like a very humble athlete, or they seem like they're a very real person. We still, but, but listen, before Christianity, nobody talked that way about humility. 
In secular Greek literature in Jesus' day, the words humility and lowliness were rarely ever even used. And if they were used, it was always derogatory. It was always a derogatory sense of weakness, groveling, or shameful lowliness. But then Jesus comes along and starts talking about being last and not first, about not being served but serving others. And Paul picks up Jesus' theme and talks here about do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which is pride, but in humility. And the Greek word for humility means lowliness of heart. It's been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not beating yourself up and having a bad self-image, thinking less of yourself. I'm a loser. I'm a nobody. That's not humility. That's actually sort of an inverted, perverse form of pride because you're still thinking about yourself all the time. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself Less. Paul's saying we have to empty ourselves of pride to be humble. And then in verse 4, if I were to summarize this with one word, it would be the word service. To serve others. To let others shine. To give other people the platform. The conductor of a symphonic orchestra was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And he responded, second violin. Now, if you're not familiar with the symphony, They're seated by chairs, and first chair is supposed to be the best musician, second chair, and so on and so forth. He says the most difficult instrument to play in a symphonic orchestra is the second violin, and he explained, I can find plenty of people who will play first violin, but to find someone who will play second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. In the kingdom of God, we're all eager to play second violin to empty ourselves of the first chair, to empty ourselves of being seen and noticed and applauded and to say, I don't need to be served. I'm here to serve others. This is not about me. And so the question that we must grow to ask ourselves daily is this, how can I live more emptied? How can I empty myself more? And the truth is, is we will not have within us the inner resources necessary to do this unless we remember the first point, the full life we have. Because we have a full life in Christ, the empty life that we need is possible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous pastor, he says it this way. He was talking about humility. He said, a friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? Have you ever asked that about yourself? How can I be a more humble person? This person felt that there was pride in him. He wanted to know how to get rid of it. And he seemed to think that I would have some remedy. And I could tell him, do this, do that, do the other, and then presto, you will be humble. But he said this instead. This is so much wisdom. I have no method or technique. I can't even tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because as soon as you do it, you'll be proud of that. There is only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus, you cannot be anything else. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, when you look at Jesus, you realize who he is and what he has done, and then you will be humbled. And so the solution to empty ourselves of pride and our personal preferences and our prioritization of ourselves is not to double down in our efforts and to try harder, but it's to look into the face of Jesus. And when we see him for who he is, all of a sudden our hearts will be tremendously humble and also very hopeful. So let's finish by looking at Jesus. And what we see, the way that Paul says is that there's a full life we have, there's an empty life we need. But then he finishes by pointing at Jesus who was empty for us, but he's full forever. So let's talk about this. Empty for us, full forever. Let's finish the passage. Verse 5, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's some debate, different translations say, which was also in Jesus, and some translations say, which is yours in Jesus. It's actually two different things. Which is also in Jesus means that Jesus was our example. Which is yours in Jesus means that Jesus was our substitute. So who's right? I think it's both, actually. Jesus was our substitute. We have this mind because it's ours in Jesus, but I think Jesus also is our example. He had this mind, so I think it's both. We don't have to choose. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, and here's the word we've been talking about this morning, he emptied himself, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want us to see what Jesus did and what he didn't do. And in verse 6, we see what he didn't do. So verse 6, what did he not do? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In life, you're going to be a grasper or a giver. You're going to pull and hoard things to yourself to give you purpose and meaning and value, or you're going to find your purpose and meaning value in Jesus, and it's going to make you a giver. And the question this morning is, am I a grasper or am I a giver? Are my hands and my heart open or am I pulling things to myself and holding tightly to them with an over-dependence and over-need for them? Jesus is our example here. He did not count equality with God. Jesus is fully God, yet he did not consider his status as being God, something that he would hold to and grasp to. He gave it up so that what did he do? He emptied himself. Now, the word empty means to, it's the divestiture. It's the giving up of position or prestige. So Jesus gave up his position seated, you know, in the heavenlies, in heaven, uh, the prestige and position, he gave it up. The way he gave it up, though, this is very important to understand theologically, not by subtracting deity from himself. Jesus was not less God when he came to earth, but he gave it up by adding humanity to himself and becoming the God-man. So Jesus was fully God and fully man. So he did not empty himself by getting rid of his godness. He emptied himself by taking on humanity. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And then he found himself in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me up here. Jesus displayed his humility for us and to us, by not regarding anything beneath him. He didn't sit up in heaven and say, nah, it's too much for me to go to earth. It's below me. He didn't come to earth as a human and say, good enough is all I'm going to do, but there's no way I'm going to be uh, overlooked by people. I'm going to be a human, but I'm going to be a powerful human. No, he became a servant. He didn't say, well, I'll, I'll just serve, but don't have, I'm not going to die. The, the king of life dying? It's ludicrous. He didn't say that. He was willing to die. And then he didn't say, I'll die, but I'm going to die a noble death. He died the death, even the death on a cross. Now, I want to talk about the cross for a minute because the cross reveals the radical measure of Christ's humility. I read this this week, that the cross was deemed an especially appropriate death for rebels and slaves because the cross, listen to this, the cross was not just designed to kill someone, although it did that. 
The cross was designed to shame someone. This was not about death when he puts him on the cross. This was about shame because the victim would be stripped down to no or few clothes, nailed to a cross through their ankles and wrists, sometimes fastened and secured with ropes, and they would hang there for days. It was a slow, excruciating death. They would not die suddenly. Death would come eventually because they would grow so weary and so uh, and, and unable. What they would need to do is they would begin to suffocate. So what they would need to do is push off of the nails that were in their ankles and push themselves back up, which would only, of course, worsen the wounds in their ankles, push themselves back up so that they could breathe again. And it could take days, and they would hang there naked, and people would walk by. And it wasn't just about execution. It was about shame. The excruciating pain and shame was common to all who were crucified, but Jesus' suffering on the cross is unparalleled and unequaled because he didn't just bear natural pain, he bore the terrible curse of sin, according to Galatians 3.13, and he suffered the wrath of God as our atoning substitute and sacrifice in Romans 3. When we look at the cross, here's what we see. Jesus emptied himself for us. I want you to notice something. It says that he humbled Himself. This means sometimes we think, well, boy, Jesus got the bad deal here. Jesus was 100% in control. He said himself, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. And that's why it doesn't say he was humbled. Nobody humbled Jesus. He humbled himself. Herod did not humble him. Pilate did not humble him. The high priests did not humble him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did not humble him. The Roman soldiers did not humble him. Even the cross, it did not humble him. Jesus chose to humble himself. What humility. The most humblest man who ever lived is Christ himself, the God-man. No other man or woman has ever come close, the humble one. Why the cross, though? Why the shame? Why the destitution? Why the worst of all? In 2018, there was a story that captured the globe. These 12 soccer players in Thailand and their coach got stuck inside this cave and there was no way to get them out and the waters were rising. There's been many documentaries made about this since then and we know some of the people who were involved in that rescue plan. And initially, they thought, we just gotta get to the cave next to their cave. We just got to get close to them, and then we'll, we'll send something through, and we'll pull them out. And, but as they began to realize how perilous the situation was and how lost these boys were, they realized we can't just get close. We got to go all the way. If we're going to save them, we got to get to them. We got to go where they are at their lowest and at their worst. And that's why Jesus had to die, not just any death, but the death of a cross, because he needed to get to us. He needed to get to you. He needed to get to me. And it wasn't going to be enough to go halfway. It wasn't going to be enough for him to say, I'll just come and be your example. I'll be the best human ever. No, you be a human like me. He knew we'd mess it up immediately. It wasn't even enough just for him to die as an innocent sufferer. He had to die the most shameful, worst death imaginable because that's where he found you and me, lost in our shame, lost in our sin, lost in our sickness. This is a Jesus who emptied himself for us. But as we finish, he's not empty forever. He's emptied himself for us, but he's full forever. The verse says, therefore, 
Because Jesus emptied himself for us, therefore God fills him up. He highly exalted him. Actually, it's kind of cool. In the Greek, Paul chooses the most extreme language he had access to. Here's what Paul said. He didn't just exalt Jesus. It says that God super exalted him. (laughs) Paul is making a very clear point that the one who was emptied for us is now full forever. He exalted him and bestowed on him the name that was above every name. It's the name of Lord, that he is Lord over all, that all authority belongs to him. And he sat down at the right-hand side of the Father in, in majesty where he now reigns and rules. And as wondrous as that exaltation was, there's a future exaltation coming that will be even greater where every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And Paul is exhaustive here when he mentions the spheres that will bow their knees to Jesus above us, around us, and beneath us. There is not a corner of creation that will not bow their knee to Jesus, to who he is, and to what he's done. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, our Father. He is empty for us so that he can be full forever. And what does this mean for you and for me as we finish? That if you and I are going to be willing to empty ourselves of our pride and our preferences and our need to be noticed, It's going to start with believing the full life we have in Christ, his love, his comfort, his affection, his community. Here's my observation. Many Christians are trying to empty themselves, but they're not living full lives, and it's exhausting. You try to empty yourself of your pride, but you don't know who you are in Jesus, you'll never do it, and even when you do do it, you'll be doing it for the wrong reasons. We have to live full if we're going to live empty. We have to know the full life we have if we're going to live the empty life that we need and that the world around us needs.